This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, Darren Stone shares on Calvin's political theology and its relevance today. Darren Stone is the state capital minister of North Carolina for Ministry to State. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2022 General Assembly. Let's listen as Mr. Stone provides insights into Calvin's political theology. Well, it's good to have you all here. Thank you for um, coming today. My name is Darren Stone, and I work with Ministry to State, which is the PCA's Ministry to Government, and uh, it operates under MNA. And so I serve as Ministry to State's minister at the North Carolina State Capitol in Raleigh. So what I get to do is serve as a minister and missionary to those who serve in state government. But uh, with regard to my role with Ministry to State and what we do in Calvin, he writes this. He says that no one ought to doubt that civil authority is a calling not only holy and lawful before God, but also the most sacred and by far the most honorable of all callings in the whole life of mortal men. And so one of the great opportunities then that the PCA has is to send ordained teaching elders into capitals amongst the government to serve those who Calvin calls vicars of God. That's what he calls the civil magistrate. He calls them vicars of God. And we can go about helping to maintain a biblical conscience and develop a biblical world and life view, to develop the hearts and minds of those who profess to follow Christ to live consistently and according to him. But we can also do what we're doing today and help the church develop a more thoughtful and robust political theology. And as ministers, you've no doubt... Uh, taught when the, when the Bible uh, speaks to the, the issues as you preach consecutively through a book of the Bible or whether you're addressing a particular topic, it'll speak to issues such as marriage and parenting, things like money, uh, injustice, sex, racial and ethnic issues, all of these topical issues that may be issues that individuals and the church collectively are facing in the culture. But sometimes when it comes to political theology, uh, we, we 
we might want to steer a little bit away from that. That might be our natural inclination uh, because of a various number of factors that we're going to explore. But unless it comes up in Romans 13 or, or, or Titus 3 or 1 Peter 2 or some of those passages that we might be preaching, maybe even in Daniel, uh, otherwise we, we sometimes steer clear of addressing political issues head on because we do live in a tremendously polarized culture. There's a lot of division in the church and in the world about these matters. And there's a lot of confusion also about the relationship of the state to civil authority. And so we're facing this, but we've also faced something in the past couple years regarding the coronavirus. And that has really placed the church in a position to where it has encountered the face of government as the institutional church in ways that many of us may have never experienced before. And so sometimes uh, there's, a, there's, with regard to the issues that we confront in scripture, maybe some kind of gap that we might perceive to be the case between the doctrinal and the, and the political. And even in our discussions at General Assembly over the years, we've had, we've had uh, hearty debates over uh, good faith subscription and, and strict subscription and debates over creation and debates over intinction and debates over uh, who, who is qualified to serve in the office of deacon. And those have been meaningful debates within the church, but they're not so much political debates going on in the world. But then when we start talking about issues of sexuality, when we start uh, talking about issues of womb to tomb life, issues of, of uh, abortion and uh, things of that nature, we're, we're, we're the lines between what is spiritual and what is political overlap tremendously. And so there are political manifestations there. Now, with that said, I think Calvin is tremendously helpful to us. Calvin is remarkably helpful because his political theology has influenced not only the Reformed world, but also in many respects the Western world in a secular sense even over the past 500 years. And so we're, in our time together, we have like 45 minutes. And so I'm not going to give you a full comprehensive you know, summary of Calvin's thought because I don't want to shoot you down with a fire hose. That's just going to be a little bit too much. But I do want to just zero in on a few particulars regarding his thought. But the overarching thing I want us to see is this, is that before we even get into those particulars, I think the most important thing we have to remember about Calvin is the relationship he has in view between God and man and between man and his fellow man, uh, the obligations that people have towards one another. And he speaks of our relationship to God as being one that ought to be shaped by piety. Piety is absolutely central to what Calvin is bringing to bear in his institutes and in his commentaries and his sermons and his other writings as well. And so he defines piety like this. He says it is reverence joined with love of God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. And so Calvin holds that piety is not a matter of tongue, but of life. It is not apprehended by understanding and memory alone, as other disciplines are, but it is received when it possesses the whole soul and finds a seat and resting place in the inmost affection 
of the heart. And I love this line here as well about piety. He says, for Calvin, piety is spiritual where the inner feeling, the inner feeling of the mind is unfailingly dedicated to God for the cultivation of holiness and righteousness. John McNeil, the great Calvin scholar, says that Calvin's theology is piety described at length. And so it, this has implications for all of life. It, it, it's, not, it's not just merely a vertical thing for Calvin. It's something that transcends to all the aspects of life, such as family and our relationship to our neighborhood and education, culture, business, politics. All of these areas are realms of duty in which we are called to honor God and love our neighbors and to do so with a life shaped by Christian piety. And so to be struck with the awe of God compels the Christian to participate with Christ-like distinctiveness into the common affairs of mankind. And he would address the Anabaptists who had a much different view of this with regard to their political engagement because their political engagement was not political. It was, it was not political engagement. It was political withdrawal. They, they, were, they were detached from, from that and they separated the civil government from the Christian life. And so he would, uh, he would make it very clear in his writings to, to, to draw out the falsehoods of the Anabaptist view on that as being antithetical to what Christian piety ought to look like in the realm of politics. So for us as, as followers of Christ, as pastors, as shepherds of the flock of God, it's incumbent that our people then understand their relationship to civil authority uh, as a vital avenue through which they are to display godliness. It's, it's where the rubber meets the road in their Christian discipleship, one of the arenas in which that happens. Calvin insists in his institutes, he says, that it is of no slight importance for us to know how lovingly God has provided in the respect of ordaining civil authority for mankind, that greater zeal for piety might flourish in us to attest our gratefulness. So do you see that connection there? The connection of, the, of, of a pious life, a life oriented towards God for the sake of his glory, and to understand that that has manifestations into the political world, into the civil authority, and to remember that it is an act of God's love that he's provided this institution of civil authority for us. So in light of that, uh, I want to just zero in on a few vital aspects of Calvin's theology here, uh, political theology here. If it was our sermon, we would be having three points, but it's Calvin, and so we're going to have five points, all right? <laughs> and you should be very thankful that this isn't a, a, a message on, like, Puritan sermons, we would have 67 points and you would be here till one in the morning. So uh, anyway, the first thing that I want us to see is this, that there's for Calvin, there's one kingdom of God with God's lordship being exercised in two spheres, the spiritual sphere and the temporal sphere. So Calvin will explain this understanding of, of what might also be called two kingdoms uh, in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, chapter three, in a section on 
Christian freedom before he gets into the topic of civil government. And this is what he says. This is a little bit of a longer quote, but I think this really helps to distill this. So if you want to reference it, it's uh, Book 3, Chapter 19, uh, Section 15. Book 3, Chapter 19, Section 15. And this is what he says. He says, Let us first consider that there is a twofold government in man. One aspect is spiritual, whereby the conscience is instructed in piety and in reverencing God. The second is political, whereby man is educated for the duties of humanity and citizenship and citizenship that must be maintained among men. These are usually called the spiritual and temporal jurisdictions, not in proper terms, by which is meant that the former sort of government pertains to the life of the soul, while the latter has to do with the concerns of this present life, not only with food and clothing, but with lying down laws whereby a man may live his life among other men holily, honorably, and temperately. For the former resides in the inner mind, while the latter regulates only outward behavior. The one we may call the spiritual kingdom, the other we may call the political kingdom. Now these two, as we have divided them, must, must always be examined separately. And while one is being considered, we must call away and turn aside the mind from thinking about the other. There are in man, so to speak, two worlds over which two different kings and two different laws have authority. And so we see those two kingdoms, the inward and the outward, the spiritual and the temporal. And there's, there's an eschatological context that Calvin is seeming to lean into there. This, this already not yet, this Pauline dualism that's, that's very much eschatological in character that looks into the present age and the age to come. Creation corrupted and creation restored. The, co- the kingdom already consummated, uh, established and the kingdom not yet consummated. Uh, so it's consistent with uh, the Pauline integration of the body and the soul. And it's sometimes Calvin will get accused of being uh, Neoplatonic here, but but that's not the case. He, he's not. This isn't some kind of Gnostic dualism that Calvin is espousing here, where there's the sharp distinction between the body and the soul. He, he sees some, uh, he, he sees a, a distinction, but not a sharp separation. And I think this is what he's getting at here when he's zeroing in on these two kingdoms that are definitely distinct, but they operate in tandem uh, under the authority of God is seeking to bring about his purposes. And so civil power then, it derives its authority from Christ. It represents his righteousness and it's tasked with promoting justice. It's tasked with maintaining life and the common good. It's a kingdom that's temporal, but it's also a kingdom of power. It pertains to civil justice, outward morality, uh, and Christian freedom with natural law as its standard, and we'll talk about natural law in just a few moments, and using the sword as its weapon. And so with this in view, Calvin will say that every nation 
is free to make such laws as it foresees to be profitable for itself. Yet these must be in conformity to that perpetual rule of love. And so he's not a theonomist, is he? So that, that's an important point that he seems to be bringing out there. Uh, each nation is free to make its own laws and even have its own structure of government. He doesn't advocate for a particular structure of government as being the only legitimate structure of government. He has his, he has his views on that, but there, there's, he, he doesn't just say that there's only one true structure of government that a nation must have there. And so that's the role of the civil power. It has the power of the sword. It has the power of coercive legal force. Whereas he says that ecclesiastical power that spiritual power derives its authority of Christ from Christ as well as the civil government does, but it's a kingdom of grace pertaining to eternal life and residing in the soul. Special revelation, the scriptures are at standard as opposed to natural law, and the means of grace are its weapons. And so it has a spiritual government. Its, its power is ministerial and declarative uh, and it is its power is executed through the ministry of congregationally elected church officers and so the civil government can bind our conscience to the law in other words it can say you are legally required to only drive 55 miles per hour and we're required to obey that. And, and Calvin will say in the section on Christian freedom that, that that's not an encroachment on our Christian freedom. That's not a binding, <clears throat> excuse me, of a, of a spiritual conscience. The, 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 civil, the, the civil authority, the civil magistrate has the power to do that. The, the church only has the power to bind consciences insofar as what is revealed in Scripture alone. So... That's, that's the first point that we discover from, from Calvin, those, uh, those distinctions between the spiritual and, and temporal governments. And now, number two, the second aspect that we need to discover here is that, like Luther, Calvin employed a two-kingdoms language, but his application of that doctrine was somewhat different. And so Luther's twofold view of God, um, of God's rule of, of the kingdom, uh, was that the kingdom of the world was governed through the law, and the spiritual kingdom is governed by the gospel. So you see this sharp kind of law-gospel uh, distinction there. Within Lu the Lutheran tradition, the political and temporal realm had far more independence from Christianity, from scripture, from its obligations to to, to Christ than it does in the Reformed understanding that was really shaped by Calvin's theology here. So Calvin and Luther will employ the same language, but not necessarily mean the same thing by it. Um, not that that happens at all in our own age, but <laughs> we're not dealing with that at all. But uh, At any rate, that's, that's where he seems to fall on that. Now, uh, Calvin taught, or I'm sorry, Luther taught that Christians were, were citizens of both kingdoms, just like Calvin taught. Uh, but that sharp law-gospel uh, separation left very little room for resistance uh, 
by the church towards the state. And that was very common in the medieval theology at the time, uh, that, that there was just no place really for, I mean, we were just called, it was just Romans 13, right? It was just submit in all things to the government. There wasn't much of a, of a sense of resistance that was, that was part of their political theology. And Luther also held that the church had an exclusively spiritual role and had no, um, really had no basis to speak into the affairs of society uh, where there might be an intersection with what was going on politically. Now, on some level, it sounds a little bit like 19th century Southern Presbyterian spirituality of the church doctrine, doesn't it? Like where Luther was. Um, and we're going to get to more of that in just a few minutes, so hang on to it. But suffice it to say that Calvin's position was a little bit different in this regard. So he sought to protect the church from state interference, and he was, he was, he was so fiercely committed to that that it was that issue that actually got him kicked out of Geneva. Because what Calvin did was he was insisting that it was the church and not the magistrate, not the civil authority, who had the right to, uh, to execute church discipline. And at the time, the state had that power. There was that overlap. They're coming out of this Roman Catholic world here. And, and Calvin absolutely vehemently rejected that view and was expelled uh, from Geneva in 1538 for it. And then when he came back, uh, later, when he was welcomed back into Geneva, he would fight that battle with the Genevan Council for 15 more years before that issue ever even got uh, handed over. That, that, uh, that role and responsibility was actually handed over to the consistory. Uh, so it was a battle that Calvin fought for, for most of his ministry there in Geneva. Uh, the, this this uh, overbearing nature of the state onto the church. But Calvin also believed that the state, he also believed this, and this is something that's, that might be a little bit at odds with our American-mindedness here. Calvin believed that the state had the responsibility to cherish and protect the outward worship of God. He says that, that it is the state's responsibility to cherish and protect the outward worship of God and defend sound doctrine and piety. And that it was to prevent idolatry and sacrilege against God's name, blasphemies against his truth, and other public offenses against religion arising and spreading uh, among the people. And it is to insist that a public manifestation of religion may exist among Christians. Then he writes in his commentary on 1 Timothy chapter 2, the, the passage where we're, um, we're called to pray for the governing authorities so that we would live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. Calvin says that the magistrates are to promote religion, to maintain the worship of God, and to take care that the sacred ordinances be, reserved, uh, be observed with due reverence. And, and he'll go on in other uh, commentaries, in Daniel 4, and, and in his sermons, where, where he where he puts the onus on the state to have a bias towards the Christian faith, to have a bias towards the things of God, to protect the church in its worship and work so that it is able to do so freely, 
uh, and with, with the liberty to, to uh, preach the, the, the scriptures and administer the sacraments. And that there's, in other words, just to be, to be a, a preferred uh, bias towards the church by the state. And I think that when you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, for instance, you know, we've, the, the original version in chapter 23.3 seems to be a little bit more in line with what Calvin was getting at in his institutes and in his commentaries and in his sermons than our American version does that, was, uh, um, that came out in 1789 on that particular issue. So... Uh, that's something to really, you know, consider more deeply. Like, where, where do you fall on that? What, does, what would Scripture teach on that matter? Um, Calvin, he believes that the state has obligations to the church, not in, definitely not in a papal sense where the church had, uh, you know, a magisterial authority over, or, over the state, um, but in the sense that it was at least to have a, a, a bias and a preference towards the things of Christ and to the church. And he was convinced that distinctively Christian concerns had an important role in the public square. So um, he he would have been very he would have been 180 degrees the opposite of if you were a philosophy major in college and you read John Rawls' The Theory of Justice, his position on that, which is you know the, there's just no place for that in in the world. And that's very much trickled down into the American ethos that, that religion is, you know, separation of church and state means that, that the church doesn't really, it, it ought to just, you know, check its faith at the door when it comes into the political realm. Calvin would have none of that. And, and he even doesn't even think that the people who serve in elected office and, and holding civil authority should, uh, that's the opposite of how they ought to be. In fact, they ought to have a preference towards the things of Christ. Uh, thirdly, let's look at the third one. Uh, Calvin's view of natural law compels the state to govern in ways which are consistent with the general equity of the Ten Commandments. And so Calvin will identify natural law with a popular sense of common justice. They'll say this in um, the Institutes, chapter 20, section 16. He says that the law of God, which we call the moral law, is nothing else than a testimony of natural law and of that conscience which God has engraved upon the minds of men. Consequently, the entire scheme of this equity of which we are now speaking has been prescribed in it. Hence, this equity must alone be the goal and limit of all laws. And so it's the Decalogue, it's the Ten Commandments that ought to frame and influence and shape all positive law. That is the actual laws that are passed. Um, it's the Ten Commandments that, that ought to be informing all of that. That's book three. That's, book, that's, uh, that's from book four, chapter 20, section 16. Book four, 20... Back, book 4, chapter 20, is Calvin's section uh, on uh, the civil magistrate uh, in his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's the very last chapter of the last book. 
So just flip to the end and you'll find it. Um, so Calvin, Calvin defined that, that natural law as being the Decalogue or the moral law. And where is he getting this biblically? Well, he's looking at Romans chapter 2, right? This is, this is where he's, this is coming from when he speaks of Gentiles who naturally do what the law requires, even though they didn't have the law. And, uh, and so he'll, he'll talk about the fact that they, have, uh, they already have some notions of justice and rectitude. And it's that, that sense of, uh, of law uh, is implanted in their, their, nat- in their nature uh, by virtue of being created in the image of God. They're not wholly destitute of the knowledge of what is right and just. Um, and then finally, he'll say here in chapter 4, book 20, section 16, or I'm sorry, in his commentary on Romans chapter 2, he'll say that he sets nature in opposition to a written law, meaning that the Gentiles had the light of righteousness, which supplied the place of that law by which the Jews were instructed. So they were a law unto themselves. So, so there's still some, some spark, some, some light to have a knowledge of justice, right and wrong, truth and falsehood, and it's implanted in our nature. And it should be considered in light of Calvin's understanding of uh, the Old Testament laws being the, the civil and, uh, and, I'm sorry, the ceremonial and civil laws having been fulfilled in Christ. Those are no longer binding, but the moral law is, right? So he, he'll say that the moral law is, is still binding. It commands us to worship God with pure faith and piety and to embrace men with sincere affection. And so you'll even you see that in the previous point, right, where there's supposed to be this preference that the government has towards Christianity, uh, towards, towards the law. He's, he's not just talking about the second table of the law in terms of our relationship from man to man. He's also talking about the relationship between, from, with man to God, man, God and man. <clears throat> so he'll maintain this distinction between the spiritual and the temporal kingdoms but he affirms that government ought to privilege the church and the law of God. Um, I, I have heard people in the church sometimes say, you know, you can't, with, with regard to political issues that might be coming down the pike, they'll say something like, you know, you can't expect that non-Christians are going to act like Christians or think like Christians. To which I respond, I mean, I, you can't expect Christians to think like Christians. You know, I mean, it, that, it, it just, if you've been a pastor for more than about 45 seconds, you, you can probably figure that out, right? But what Calvin will, will say here is that, no, the fact of the matter is that, is that there's, there's some measure in which the, there's law that has been written on the hearts of, of man. There's a sense of knowledge of good and evil and, and justice and injustice. Uh, he'll, he'll even take, uh, by way of example, looking at the Eighth Commandment, which is you shall not steal, and he'll look at all these nations that are pagan nations. They, I mean, they have nothing to do with God whatsoever, but they still have, they, they still have you know, laws, <laughs> 
against theft, and they punish it uh, because, they're, because they understand that that is a colossal injustice. So there might be a diversity of forms of government and a diversity of punishments for government from nation, uh, for theft from nation to nation, um, but they're permitted to do so because there's a certain measure of light which exists within them. And so natural law becomes their standard. Natural law becomes the standard, which is, which is the, an understanding of the Decalogue becomes a standard by which they are to, uh, to bring about positive law, to bring about the actual laws. Now, fourth, uh, Calvin's position promotes a biblical justification for civil disobedience, or I should say civil resistance, and political engagement in a way that Luther's view does not. Um, We've talked a little bit about this already, but Calvin absolutely affirms the the biblical command that we are to honor and submit to our authorities. And I've already, when I started off, I told you, you know, what the high view that he has of those who serve in government, the high view of the civil magistrate. I mean, to call them, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a slap in the face to, to Rome to call the civil magistrates bickers of God. When you really think of the, the, the historical context in which he's writing, that's, that's what he refers to them as. He speaks of, of them quite positively. I mean, it's not what you're going to find on Fox News or CNN when you turn that on. And, 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 and for the record, I mean, a lot of our people are discipled by those sources. Like, that, that's, that's what's discipling them. That's what they're getting preached at, preached from every day, three hours a day, all day long. And that, that's what you're up against in terms of your political theology. But when Calvin comments on Romans chapter 13, he insists, as Paul does, that we're called to submit to governing authority, but he makes it clear that government's authority is derived from God and it's not intrinsic. Right? And he'll say that about all authority. All all human authority is derived from God. It's not intrinsic to that individual. And so when the government compels us to do that, that which God prohibits, or prohibits us from doing that which God commands, then we must resist that. And we see examples of that in like Acts chapter 5, for instance, where the Sanhedrin were prohibiting the proclamation of the gospel. And Peter says, uh, we must obey God and not man, right? And so we see that there. We see that with the Hebrew midwives who refused to, to, um, to murder the infant Hebrew boys, uh, even though Pharaoh had commanded him to do so, and other places in Scripture as well. So all that plays into his doctrine of political resistance. Um, He has a doctrine of the lesser magistrate, and I think that doctrine is is where he's really zeroing in on this issue that allows for um, resistance to sort of despotic rulers. So in the Institutes, he'll... he'll, uh, take examples from ancient history, from Sparta and Rome and Athens, uh, that there were uh, certain lesser magistrates who were elected by popular vote of the people, and they served as a check and a balance uh, upon supreme command. And in our American system, we have so much to be thankful for with regard to that. 
I mean, our country is jacked up. I mean, it is jacked up in, in a myriad of manifestations. But we have a structure that mitigates against a top-down, hierarchical, uh, you know, iron-fisted rule that most countries or many other countries of the world do not. I mean, within our executive branch, there are lesser magistrates, and they're charged with obeying their superiors, uh, but with also faithfully executing the law. And if necessary, they're called to resist unlawful commands. That's part of their role as members of that executive branch. Within the, the legislative branch, it's a government of the people, right? And those who are tasked with making laws do so climbing a, a monumental uh, hill. I mean, the, the, the process of actually getting a bill passed into law is, is colossal. And it mitigates against many of the tyrannical laws that we might otherwise have. Within a judicial branch, the ordinary citizens can apply for relief. They can seek relief by taking their, their, uh, uh, their case and appealing it to another, uh, another court. And so when a Christian faces injustice, when it faces uh, an un unconstitutional overreach, uh, we're more likely to have to consider, is there legal recourse at all for me here uh, than there is even whether we're, we have the duty to do so. So when you think about what we experienced during the pandemic, um, you know, the, the insistence upon mask wearing, limits on number of people who could gather uh, in a room for, for worship and so forth. There are many churches, perhaps your church, who believe those, um, those positions of government to be an unconstitutional overreach and, um, and that they were prohibited from doing something that God was commanding them to do. And so there would be resistance. And I think there are a few things that we have to think of in light of Calvin's theology here. I mean, one is that if we, if we just as individuals or even as institutions just decide, you know, that, that law is an illegal law, and so we're just going to not obey it, then what we're doing is we're, we're, on a, we're opening the doors to anarchy in, in ways that I, I think are unbiblical and, and unhealthy. I mean, they, they, it's a bad slope to get yourself on. The way that Calvin would suggest that we do this is that we appeal to the courts. And often the way that we get there is to resist... And then what happens is you either get fined or arrested, and then it goes to the courts. That's how it oftentimes gets, the matter actually gets before the courts in the first place. Uh, and that forces the issue into that, into that realm. That would be a, a, a means of political resistance for Calvin. And we saw that uh, uh, it frequently during the civil rights era and so forth. Um, so unless we're truly commanded to do that which God prohibits us from doing, um, uh, we're, we're always to obey God rather than to obey man. So if the courts prohibit us from doing what God commands, we, we still would defy that governing authority. So we need to, to remember a few things before I move on to the final position. Number one is we need to consider the difference between an unjust law 
and a law that commands us to do injustice. Does that make sense? So we might say that um, the, the right uh, f to have an abortion is, uh, is, an, is an injustice. That, that shouldn't happen. Maybe someone would, 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 would say that. We would take that position, right? That's different than what China did, for instance, when they said they had the one-child policy back in like the 80s and 90s, where if you got pregnant with a second child, you were, I mean, it, it, you were commanded to abort that unborn child. That's, there's a difference there in how that, might, how that would be approached. So that's number one, the difference between an unjust law and a law that commands us to actively do that which is unjust. Secondly, uh, we must always profane, uh, refrain, not profane, uh, refrain from doing that which God prohibits, but sometimes we can't always do what God requires. And with the pandemic, I think that that was, some, that was a consideration that churches had to make, and they had to lay their consciences before God with regard to that. But uh, there might be certain cases where you can't, I mean, you can't literally pray without ceasing, right? Um, there's a principle there, but you can't literally do that. There's certain things that you might not, I mean, if you, if, if you're, um, you can't gather for worship if you are, uh, you know, in the hospital and you fell down an elevator shaft or something like that on Saturday night. I mean, you might not be able to do that. So that, the point is, is that you need to make those distinctions. And then we need to consider when the prohibition that the government brings to bear upon us is in front of us, we need to consider whether it's a reasonable uh, and well-grounded prohibition adopted as a last resort. So if they're prohibiting the church from worship, is that the last resort? Or are they really trying to prohibit Christians from worshiping? And we heard that a lot, right? We heard uh, the government just doesn't want, uh, you know, they're, they're just trying to squash out the, the church. And there may, that may have been the case, but we also need to consider, it, were they really taking this as a, as a matter of last resort? Now, fifth and finally, we'll say this. Calvin's position affirms the reformed doctrine of the spirituality of the church, but he does so without encouraging the nefarious ways in which that doctrine has sometimes been applied. So what do we mean when we talk about two kingdoms, um, the spiritual and the, the, uh, being the church and the temporal being the state? Um, Calvin will say that the spiritual kingdom indeed is already initiating in us upon earth certain beginnings of a heavenly kingdom. And in this mortal fleeting life affords a certain forecast of an immortal and incorruptible blessedness. The spiritual kingdom resides in the soul or inner man and pertains to eternal life, and the temporal or political kingdom pertains only to the establishment of civil justice and outward morality. So you'll find that in chapter 4, uh, book 4, chapter 20, section 1 of the Institutes. Book 4, 20, section 1. With that in view, listen to how James Henley Thornwell defines the spirituality of the church. Someone who thought about this a little bit. The church 
has no commission to construct society afresh, to change the forms of its political constitutions, the problems which the anomalies of our fallen state are continually forcing on philanthropy, those things the church has no right to solve. She must leave them to the providence of God and to human wisdom, sanctified and guided by the spiritual influences which it is her glory to foster and cherish. The church has a fixed and unalterable constitution, and that constitution is the word of God. She can announce what it teaches, enjoin what it commands, and prohibit what it condemns. But beyond the Bible, she can never go, and apart from the Bible, she can never speak. Now, that assertion from Thornwell is 100% consistent with what John Calvin has to say about the spirituality of the church. He says that Christ's spiritual kingdom and the civil jurisdiction are things completely distinct. And so the Southern Presbyterians like Thornwell and Dabney, they didn't invent the doctrine of the spirituality of the church. This was a doctrine that was, that was being played out and being developed 200 years before they ever came onto the scene. And it was often used to defend gross injustices such as slavery and Jim Crow laws. And so what Thornwell writes here though is a simple affirmation of what every PCA officer affirms by virtue of our vows, right? We believe that church power is ministerial and declarative, not magisterial and legislative. We can only bind consciences to the scriptures alone because the scriptures are our only rule of faith and practice. We can't compel and uh, coerce people to abide by our own opinions, particularly our political opinions. And we definitely do not want the mission of the church to be corrupted by or confused with the mission of the state or to synthesize the mission of the church with the partisan interests of the Republican or Democratic parties. But the difficulty with that is that the political and spiritual overlap very often. They overlap. And so while Calvin will say that the spiritual and the temporal jurisdictions are completely distinct, uh, Christ's uh, rule oversees both of those kingdoms. Christ rules over all. He rules over both kingdoms. And so that while there is a rightful separation between the church and the state, and I would prefer to use the word distinction rather than separation, okay? We, there, there's a distinction that Calvin makes, and there's a distinction that I think constitutionally we ought to have in view between the church and the state. But there is no separation between the state and God. The state, in other words, the state cannot govern, has no right to govern without any reference to God whatsoever. And so then, the, the way that the church ought to engage with the state is to be the conscience of the state. Hodge, Charles Hodge, will say that the Bible gives us no rule for deciding the litigated questions about public improvements, a national bank, or a protective tariff, or states' rights, but it does give us rules pronouncing about slave laws, the slave trade, such as man-stealing, 
obedience to magistrates, treason, rebellion, and revolution. So it speaks to those things. It, and uh, you, know, you think of something like uh, immigration. I mean, that's, a, that's much more complicated than interviewing a member of Congress for 90 seconds on the news who's going to throw out a bunch of sound bites at you. That's a complicated matter there. And the Bible um, will speak to issues like that, but it's not going to necessarily prescribe an exact plant your flag here answer to it. Uh, so we can speak to those issues. We can speak to where the Bible speaks and we're silent where the Bible is silent. But the Bible, uh, th- this, this tradition, this, this position here that Calvin will take provides the basis of speaking prophetically about particular issues that the Bible speaks to and yet compels us to remember that our weapons are not fundamentally political They're not fundamentally legislative. They are not the sword, but they're spiritual. Our weapons are the keys. Our weapons are the word, sacraments, and prayer. And so we dare not let the desired fruit become the means of grace. We need to let the means of grace become the means of grace and not pronounce too exactly or too confidently upon matters that aren't clearly stated in in Scripture by by, God. by inference or, or explicitly stated. Um, and we need to use a, a whole bunch of prudential judgment there. So the mission of the church, of course, is to baptize, to, is to make the disciples baptize, and to teach disciples to obey Christ and all that he's commanded them. And we use the means of grace to accomplish that end. And in doing so, we remember Calvin and Scripture's aim that as citizens of Christ temporal kingdom and of his spiritual kingdom that Christ would possess our whole soul and find a seat and resting place in the inmost affections of our heart. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.